This is a Federal News Network podcast. The Advanced Research Projects Agency Energy, ARPA-E, is spending big to unearth the next generation of technologies for energy. It's launched a $175 million grant program for everything from wind to fusion. For details, ARPA-E's Deputy Director for Technology, Jenny Gerby. Ms. Gerby, good to have you here in studio. Good to be here. All right, so let's begin with this advanced energy enterprise that you describe in this program. What exactly is that within the context of the department? You know, RPE is a very interesting place in that we have the freedom to look into what problems should be solved and why. We don't have some roadmap that tells us what to do and how much money we have to spend on things. So we bring a core of people into the agency and from the bottom up decide what needs to be done. And this is a very pragmatic thing, and it's also a very optimistic thing. So it can be anything, like you mentioned, fusion, to completely new ways of doing fusion, which is way out there, to new fuels and things you could use tomorrow if they worked. So it's really looking at that entire space of how you would use something and make something, but also tech that just doesn't exist yet. It strikes me that the one hand, the problem is easy to state, go to all green or all renewable energy, if that's your bent, or no fossil fuels. But the hard part is enough power and reliable power, because it's easy to go 100% green, but we may not like it when it comes out. So is that part of the thinking? That's a really good point, because it really comes down to you know, how people behave and what they need to use. And, you know, we see all options on the table. So thinking about 100% renewable, what does that really mean? You know, you have to think about it in terms of carbon and the life cycle of things. So if you could make fuels that mimic gasoline, but that are made in even a carbon negative way, why wouldn't you use it? So, you know, you have to respect the infrastructure that's there and realize that, you know what, multiple solutions might fit in this space. You know, yes, we could go to 100% wind and solar, let's say, but then you have a lot of issues with the grid. And so grid storage ends up being a really key issue. So we don't choose winners. We look at multiple paths to solve problems, and they're not in competition with each other. Sounds like you take almost a systems view of the whole energy enterprise, if you will. Yeah. All right, let's talk about this grant program. That's a lot of money, even by federal grant program standards. Sometimes they're, you know, 10 people get $10,000. Here you've got $175 million. Let's talk about the range of types of energy sources that you would consider eligible here. Let's start there. Sure. So the open program is really unique for us. We do it every three years, and this is a chance for everybody else out there to tell us what we should be doing and for their tech to be able to fulfill our mission. And it's all about our mission, and our mission is super broad. It's basically solving energy problems for the country. So there could be technologies all over the map. Again, some of the things that I just mentioned, we have some fusion projects in this open program. We have battery projects. We have fuel projects. We have capping oil well projects. I mean, it's all over the map. And I think that's really important because it helps the agency understand what's out there, you know, what we might not be doing programs in now. And I'll emphasize it's actually not a grant program. We do cooperative agreements, which means they can change. They can stop they can grow. We actively manage these portfolios. And that's something that's a little bit unique to us. So they're not exactly acquisition contracts. They're not exactly grants, but there's some hybrid way of dealing with the outside sector. That's right. We'll have milestones. We'll have goals. We know things sometimes have to change. Sometimes a group does amazing work and shows something's impossible. 
We say thank you so much, write it up, and then we actually stop the funding. So in some ways that fulfills something that a lot of people in government often say should be done but often isn't because of whatever lethargy or fear, but that is countenancing failure. That is to try things and, well, it didn't work out, but at least now we know. Exactly. And, you know, that's one of the reasons why this country has such a strong innovation culture is because we are not afraid to fail. We are not afraid to take chances. And the thing is, if that is in your mission, if up front you know that that's going to be the case and you accept that level of risk, then you can do these things. And that's why the agency needs to be set up the way it is. And we're very lucky to have the freedom to be able to do this in the right way. And the people that set up the agency knew exactly what they were doing to enable that to happen. So, you know, you take 15 shots on goal. That goal seems almost impossible. If two of those shots work, that's amazing. That's disruptive. And it has formed a whole new pathway of being able to get things done. So that's what we do. Yeah, I hear the new CAPS coach coming, maybe, you know, <laughs> if, if things don't work out this season. And what types of enterprises do you have these cooperative agreements with, both for-profit and not-for-profit? That's right. Almost anybody. So we will have small little startups, large companies, national labs, academic groups, and combinations of all of them. Uh, it really depends on the project itself and the program. And it's a challenge for us because in the same program, trying to solve one problem, let's just say, you can have 15 projects. And again, one might be a GE and you know, one might be a startup that has three people in it. We're speaking with Jenny Gerby. She's Deputy Director for Technology at the Advanced Research Projects Agency, Energy, ARPA-E. And let's talk about some of the grand challenges here. And I want to ask about two. When I was a kid, and maybe even since then, fusion was always something that was like the Jetsons. It's a fantasy. It'll be 200 years till we have fusion energy as opposed to fission energy. What's the status of fusion? And it sounds like you sense that it could be at hand. Isn't George Jetson supposed to be born later this year or something like that? Anyway, <laughs> be, no, yeah. agreed. Fusion is really exciting because there have been a lot of advances throughout the years, and there's been a lot of very large efforts towards getting the science to happen. But when you look at it from a techno-economic point of view, you could say, you know what, even if that works, that's amazing, but it doesn't make sense financially to move it forward in the right way. So we need other ways of doing this. So that's why RPE has been involved in fusion, which is a small amount of money compared to other money going into fusion, because we're looking at what are other routes, what are other ways to actually make this more feasible from a techno-economic point of view. So there have been a lot of advances in fusion. The DOE, I think, is very excited about this. I think the White House is very excited about this. And I wouldn't say it's at hand, but from a science point of view, when you look at the advances. It's really starting to look compelling. And people sometimes think fusion is a black and white thing. It's like, oh, all of a sudden it's now break even and it solves all the problems. It's like, no, it's on a path just like anything else. But it's one of the things that we're excited about. But again, one of the many things. If someone says too cheap to meter, like they said in 1950 <laughs> about atomic, don't listen to them. And my <laughs> other question is batteries, because for many years there have been steady improvements in existing battery technology, more density. But then we saw you know, a whole shipload of luxury electric cars caught fire and sank in the middle of the ocean. So there are issues with current battery technology. So the word is that you hear, we need the next generation of technology for battery. And that's a really tough breakthrough because that's chemistry. And chemistry produces a certain amount of current and voltage. That's a law of nature almost. So what do you see ahead for battery technology? which is part of your program. 
It is. We have multiple programs in batteries, I would say. And one of those things is looking at solid ion conductors. I mean, the reason batteries are flammable is because they have this liquid electrolyte in them. That's very flammable. If you can get rid of that, you can have a much safer battery. But it's also looking at different battery chemistries. There's issues with getting enough materials for batteries. If we all want to have batteries, then that means a lot of certain materials. We look at alternative chemistries, you know, chemistries that enable batteries to charge super fast. That's something that a lot of people with electric cars would like to have. And it's not the charger that's the limit. It's the battery that's the limit. So there's actually a lot of science and engineering that can go on in batteries. But, again, that field's been around for a long time. So this stuff is considered very high risk by the people who are making batteries, which is one of the reasons why we're involved in it, because we're doing some things that other people aren't doing. So it sounds like you're looking for two things. One, incremental changes and improvements in existing technologies, because those are always needed, but also the next step function in new technology or some kind of breakthrough. That's right. So RPE does the second. There's other parts of the DOE that look at improving the current technologies that we have, which is really important and constantly needs to be done. So we sort of fill in the space that is too risky for other folks to do, whether it is, you know, government funding or private funding. So we work on things that other people don't. All right. Tell us then about the program parameters here. Who can apply? When can they apply? And how does the whole thing work from a calendar standpoint? We put out a lot of different programs throughout the years, and there's also different types of programs. There's something called the RPE Exchange Site, which you should go and look on there, and that's where we release everything. So sometimes we release a sort of a call for information. We ask questions. We want to get your feedback in terms of what a future program might be. That's where we put out the funding solicitations where you apply to get funding. And we have these different focused programs constantly all the time. Again, this big open FOA that we are just talking about, that goes out once every three years. It takes a full year for us to actually go through and do the work of getting to the selections, so there should be another one in two years. But we also have another program called Scale Up, which is about funding previously funded RPE technologies to get them to the next step. So everything shows up on that exchange site. And we even have a, we have it, it's open right now, actually, an SBIR-only little seedling FOA, which are 500K grants, not cooperative agreements, for SBIR companies. All right. So if you have an idea, get in on it. Yes. Jenny Gerby is Deputy Director for Technology at the Advanced Research Projects Agency Energy. Thanks so much for joining me. Oh, thank you. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome, and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader, and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person, personally, was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was a leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. 
She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, So that was probably the the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Mm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated. Uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, And that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, And it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on What does it look like? Because I think successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I 
talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling, not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching you. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a signal effect of what other people are going to expect as black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job. And then let them roll. And that's not always easy. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Want more ways to show your good side to the world? Donate plasma at a Griffel Center and join thousands of donors who are helping to save lives. Receive up to $1,000 your first month. Learn more at grifflesplasma.com.